Now, honestly, I don't know how many of you guys do personal worship here. I, I think a lot of you do because we interact a lot during the week. And um, if you've been doing your personal worship, and if you don't know what that is, please go to our website. It's all there. But you've studied through this passage of Scripture already several times on your own according to a particular method that is actually just the pattern of the gospel in preparation for this time together where we open God's Word and now we study what you've been looking at. If you've been doing that this week, uh, you don't need a harmonica, you don't need a band, you don't need people to lead you in worship. Like you just, I mean, it's, you can't contain it. You just can't. This is one of the most marvelous passages of Scripture in all the Bible, and that's kind of saying something. So as we continue today with our study of that part of Luke's gospel, that as we've seen, Luke has set aside and he's devoted to a purpose. And what is the purpose? It's the purpose of showing us and teaching us what it looks like or what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We come now to that glorious passage of Scripture, which is Luke chapter 15 in all of its entirety. And the three stories, some of the most famous stories ever told, that work together in ever-increasing volume in ever-increasing intensity, as we'll see, to make a singular point. And that singular point is this. It is that people, and that's the operative word, are precious to God, and therefore, as His followers, well, they need to be precious to us, which, if you think about it, is exactly what they will be as our hearts become more and more and more like the heart of our Father, because as our heart becomes more and more like the heart of our Father God, then our passions will become more like His. Our desires will become more like His. Our values will become more like His. What He deems precious, we will learn in ever-increasing measure to deem more precious. And I just want to tell you in advance, more than anything else, what Jesus is doing in this passage of Scripture, it's one passage of Scripture with three stories, is He is showing us the heart of our Father, and He is inviting us to align our hearts alongside of His and to come to realize that, hey, you know what? People are precious to God, and, well, when our hearts get lined up next to His, they're then also precious to us. And by people, just so that we're clear, I mean, first of all, you people, I mean us, I mean everyone here today, everyone who has come to Christ and been found, that's important language for the day, through faith in Jesus Christ, has become a son or a daughter of the Father who is God Himself. Okay, listen, I'm here to tell you, you are absolutely precious to God, and I can state that objectively because of the cross. God Himself has sacrificed the infinitely valuable life of His one and only unique and all-the-universe Son, now get this, to purchase and redeem you. Let that wash over you. Don't, like, run past that. Let it make a difference. Let it have its transformational effect on your heart. But by people, I also mean other people. And I know that you're thinking, well, of course, other people. I mean, there's just all kinds of other precious people to God in our city. Just go around the corner. You've got First Baptist, full of precious people. We love those guys. Take a right on third, head up the street. Now you've got, what, City Church Fort Lauderdale. We planted City Church Fort Lauderdale, full of precious people. Keep going into Wilton Manors, City Church Wilton Manors. We're helping plant that full of precious people. Keep going to Pompano, City Church Pompano. Did you even know that there was a City Church network? Newsflash. Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. Calvary Chapel. 
church upon church, full of precious people. But what I want you to see today is that when I talk about people and those being precious to God, I'm not just talking about found people, people like us and people like all the people who are filling all of those churches even now as we meet. I'm also talking about lost people, and I'm talking also about lost people, you know, not just that we like, but maybe in the deepest, darkest recesses of our hearts, though it would be politically incorrect for us to admit it for reasons related to social things and religious things and political things and maybe personal things, like things of personal offense, honestly, we don't like. We don't value in a way that aligns itself with the heart of our Father. People are precious to God, and when I say people, I mean us, and I mean them, as we'll see. And the bottom line is that they need to be precious to us. So we pick up our study today in Luke chapter 15, beginning at verse 1, where we read this. It says, now the tax collectors and the sinners, hang on, those are the really, really bad people. Those are the I don't want to talk with you people. Those are the I don't want to hang out with you people. Those are the I don't want to be seen with you people. Those are the please don't touch me people. Those are the I am personally and massively offended by you people. Those are the people that had they taken a poll in that day, in that culture, in that age, they would have concluded unanimously, of course, with the exception of the tax collectors and sinners, that those were the least valuable people in their society. And in fact, they were negative value people, deep, dark secrets of their hearts. And maybe they'd even come out with it and say it. We'd all be better off without those people. That's the viewpoint toward the tax collectors and sinners. Okay, well, that's important. Because look at what Luke says next. He says, now the tax collectors and sinners, uh uh-oh, because we all have them, were what? Drawing near to hear Jesus, who unlike everyone else in their culture, as we've seen time and again now all year long in studying the life of Jesus, accepts them, embraces them. My goodness, as we'll see in a second, he shares table with them. He identifies with them. He publicly proclaims himself to be one with those of them who come to him. One of his disciples, one of the twelve, is a tax collector. It's scandalous. And it's glorious. Listen, he gave his way his life for them. Now, why would he do that? It's a simple answer, and you'll hear it again and again and again and again as we move through this passage. Because they are precious to Him. He has the heart of the Father. And the point of the story is that they need to be precious to us too. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus and the Pharisees and the scribes, who incidentally would have won the MVP award in their day, undisputed, grumbled against Jesus is the point, saying this, This man, Jesus, receives these filthy, wicked, valueless sinners that we'd all be better off without, and he eats with them. He publicly identifies with them, and so then it's in response to that criticism that Jesus told to who? To that group, this parable, and the two then that follow, all of which deal with the value of people. Jesus says to them and to us, because there's a little of them in all of us, He says, what man of you having a hundred sheep? So a hundred sheep, okay? If he has lost one, he's lost one out of a hundred, hang on to that, does not do what? And it's obvious, it's axiomatic. It's something that he presents to them and they're like, well, of course we would all do this because they understand shepherding. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he gets tired or runs out of patience or just simply throws his hands up in the air at some point and says, my goodness, you know, it's just one sheep. I've got 99 others. And at some point, 
My time and effort is worth more than this sheep. Now, that would be unacceptable. They all understood that. Jesus is drawing them in with that understanding. He says, no, no, no. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost even one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country with another shepherd to watch over them, that's the idea, and go after the one that is lost, here we go, until he finds it, no matter how much time and effort it takes to do that. Now, why does he do that? Because it's obvious. You see, just like all of the other sheep who have already been found through faith in Jesus and have found their place in the pasture of God safe, that lost sheep, that rebellious sheep, that sheep who's different in that sense, is precious to Him. And He needs to be precious to us too. And so then Jesus says that when He has found this lost sheep, He gives it a map and says, here, figure out how to get home. No? All right, he gives it directions. He says, look, go over the river and through the woods, past grandmother's house, and then you're going to come to a street, take a left on that street, follow it through town, and then on the immediate right on the other side of... No? I know what he does. He calls a pastor. He says, Matt. Did you catch that? He says, Matt, I have found the lost sheep. I'm standing here next to him. He's at the corner of Stupid and Foolish Street. Now, don't don't ask how I got here. That's that's irrelevant. Just know that I have found him here, and I've tied him to the street pole here, and, you know, you need to come get him. Is that what he does? No, he gets down in the dirt, guys, on his hands and knees. And he has to do that because here's what sheep do when they get lost and afraid. They just plop down on the ground, and then that's it. So he gets down on the ground, and and he gets his arms up under this sheep, this stinky sheep, this burr-infested sheep, this sheep with all kind of bugs running all around, and he picks him up and puts him on his neck, which freaks me out, I'm not going to lie, like I can feel him crawling between my shoulder blades right now, it's just awful, it's torturous. And then he carries this lost sheep all the way home. Jesus says when he has found it, He lays it on his shoulders rejoicing, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors. And he says to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And then Jesus does for us what only Jesus can do. The man from heaven throws back the curtains of heaven and says, listen, I want to show you the heart of heaven. And what is the heart of heaven? It's the heart of the king of heaven. It's the heart of our father who is God. He says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And here's why, because just like all of those 99 righteous, we'll put that in quotes, people who have become righteous already because they've been found through faith in Jesus Christ and have made their way safely into the sheep pen, if you will, of our God. Just like all of them, just like all of us. Man, that lost sheep is precious too. He's precious to God, and he needs to be precious to us. And just in case we missed it, Jesus now tells a second story. He says, or what woman having, now notice the numbers, 10 silver coins if she loses one coin. So we started with a hundred sheep, lost one. Now we've got 10 coins, lost one. You see how it intensifies? And not only that, this is a peasant woman. This is a poor woman. These coins represent the whole of her savings. She's just lost one-tenth of her entire net worth. Not one sheep out of a hundred. It's far more valuable. 
So what does she do? Well, what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she gets tired or runs out of patience or says, you know, there's an opportunity cost to all of this. And I've done kind of a cost-benefit analysis, and I've realized that, you know what, at some point I just need to stop looking. That coin's not worth any more effort on my part. The way that Jesus presents these stories is such that that's not even an option. What woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And why does she do that? Because the coin is precious to her. See how these stories work? Just like all of the other coins that have been found, if you will, through faith in Jesus and are safely contained within the purse of our Father God, so now... Our Father God has a purse, but go with it. The one that's lost, it's precious. And so then when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. And then Jesus, the man from heaven, does what only a man from heaven can do. He pulls back the curtains of heaven. He's saying, guys, I'm not sure that you got this the first time. So let me show you again the heart of the Father in heaven. Look at his heart, he's saying. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents, because just like all of the already found coins, all of the already repentant sinners who are already safe, if you will, within the purse that is the purse of our Father God. Man, that lost one. Boy, I hope you see his value. He's precious to God. And it needs to be precious to us. And then just in case we're still a little fuzzy on this, Jesus gives us the third and climactic story. We've got one missing sheep out of a hundred. Okay, that's alarming. Then we've got one missing coin out of ten. Uh-oh. Now we have one missing son out of two. It is quantitatively and qualitatively different. There are not enough sheep on the planet for me to trade my son for them. There are not enough coins in the universe for me to trade my son for them. You see how this intensifies? It's the climactic story. And you know the story because we've talked about it and you've studied it all your life. It's a story about a father who's clearly a picture of God and he has two sons who are clearly a picture of all of us at different times of our lives and maybe even in some way, shape, or form right now. And as the story goes, the younger, more rebellious son comes to his father and he's incredibly transparent and honest, which the older son isn't, as we'll see. He comes to his dad and he says, listen, here's the deal. Just total honesty. I want to get right to the point. I'm not interested in serving you. I'm not interested in living with you. I'm not interested in relationship with you. And truth be known, I'm not interested in you. But I am unbelievably interested in what you have. And I don't want to wait for you to die for you to give it to me. So here's what I want to do. I want you to essentially be dead to me. Just die to me now and give me my inheritance, which is crushing to the father and humiliates him in the entire community. What a dishonorable son everyone in town discovers that this father has. It's public. And even though he knows what his son is going to do, cashes out his share, says here, and off he goes. 
He takes his money, heads off to the far country, implication being a Gentile country. Remember, this was a Jewish boy, so all of this stuff rang a little bit differently in the ears of the Jewish audience of Jesus in that first century. This Jewish boy cashes out, he offends his father, shames him in a shame-based culture before the entire community. Everyone in the crowd of Jesus hates this kid by now, and now he leaves and he goes to a Gentile, unclean territory where he wastes all of his money partying. And then when the party is over and the money is run out and all of his friends disappear, a famine comes and all of a sudden this kid has nothing even to eat. He has no means of survival. This is life and death now all of a sudden for him. And so he goes to a Gentile (laughs) pig farmer, the pigs being the most unclean of all these animals, the most offensive. And he hires himself out to a pig farmer, and it says that he was given the task of feeding the pigs, and he longed to eat what the pigs ate. But here's the thing. Because the famine was so severe, his own life to this pig farmer was less valuable than the lives of the pigs themselves, and so he couldn't even eat their food. So there he is. By his own devices, I think we could all agree. Until he wakes up one day and he realizes, wait a minute, I don't have to do this. I have a father now, you know, we're a bit estranged at the moment because of what all I've done. But, I mean, even the lowliest servants in my father's household eat. They get three square square meals a day. They, They have clean clothes. They've got a good bed to sleep in. My goodness, if he'll just take me back as one of those, I will have it a whole lot better than I have now. If I stay here, I will die. If I go there, well, maybe I'll live. And so he gets up out of the pigsty, and then here's the deal. This is repentance. Repentance is not, I'm really sorry for what I've done, but I'm going to do it again tomorrow. Repentance is, I turn my back on the far country, and I head toward my father. And as he's going, he's realizing, hey, you know, when I get there, I'm going to have to have a conversation with my father. We're going to have to talk about all of this. I'm going to have to own what's happened here relationally. We've got a big breach that needs to be repaired. And so he's preparing his speech on the way. I kind of picture him having like a stack of three-by-five cards and a pen, and he's just writing and editing and tearing up as he goes. I mean, he's got plenty of time. He's got to walk all the way home. And so finally, he lands on a short speech to the point that says something like this. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I think we can all agree on that. And if you would just take me back, not, not, a, not as a son, but just as one of your servants, man, that would, that would be amazing. So here he comes. And then the camera angle shifts and it shifts to the dad. And the dad, and we've said this in the past, is I think on the roof of his house. If you're on the roof of your house, it's weird. If he is, it's all right. And I'll tell you why. The the roofs of those houses in those days were made as patios, gardens, actually, on wealthy homes. So they had a staircase up the side of the home, and they would have a nice garden terrace up there on top of the roof. They would sleep up there during the warmer months and the cooler breezes. But I think the reason that he's up there is because it's very clear that he's been staring down the road to the far country the whole of the time that his son has been gone. And the roof of the house is the best place to do that. It's the highest place in the estate. And so he's sitting up there and he's looking down the road to the far country and on the horizon he sees a person, you know, like a little speck on the horizon, just a little tiny person. And he looks at that person. Look, he's seen hundreds of these come and go. Is he not? But this one looks a little bit different. 
We, every one of us is unique. We're unique in our height and our size and our shape and the way that we move our arms and our legs and ambulate around as we walk. I mean, there's something distinctive about every one of us. And every parent here can pick their child out of a crowd that's coming toward them before that child gets close enough to see his distinct or her distinct facial features, can't you? I mean, you've studied your kids. You've watched them since they were born. You helped them take those first few steps. You know how they move. And he looks at this person on the horizon and he thinks, wow, that looks kind of familiar. And he kind of scoots up in his chair. As that person gets a little bit closer, a little bit bigger, a little bit more clear and distinct, he realizes, you know what, it it looks a lot like my son, actually. This This is kind of promising and his heart is starting to beat a little bit faster. Is this the day? As he gets a little bit closer, a little bit bigger, more distinct, he stands up walks to the edge of the roof and calls over like the chief steward of his house and says, listen, you've been here with me since this boy was born. You've watched him grow up just like I watched him grow up. I'm just going to ask you something. I want you to look at this person coming toward us on the road. Okay, just tell me, just be honest. Does that look like my son to you? And the steward, you know, is kind of freaking out inside because he's thinking, hey, I mean, dad's been up here every day since the kid left. Good grief. I don't want to blow this. Like, if I say yes and it's not him, you know, I don't want to contribute to his agony. And so he says, listen, here's the thing. I I don't want to anguish you any further by being wrong on this. But I I will say this. I understand why you're asking the question. The, The person gets a little closer, a little clearer, a little more distinct. And the father knows. It's him. And he does, and we, we've talked about this, something that Middle Eastern men wouldn't do in those, that culture, that setting. He reaches down between his feet and he grabs up all of his robes, that's what he wore, and he tucks them off in his belt, bearing his legs. That's the shameful thing. He has to assume shame to go to this son and nakedness. And then he does another thing that men would not do. He runs. He like pushes his servant out of the way and he races for the corner of the roof, you know, for the top of the staircase. And he comes running down the staircase and he comes ripping around the banister and it catches underneath his arm and he rips it half off. And he thinks, all right, we're going to have to fix that when I get back. And he comes running past the side of the house and he comes running, sprinting full on through the front yard. And meanwhile, servants who are like carrying trays of dishes are just dropping them on the floor. Like they have never seen anything like this. No category for this. Stunned silence as they watch him race across the front yard through the annuals that they just planted, which is a bummer for them, right? They watch him take the white picket fence in a single bound, land in the street, slip, slide, fall, roll, stand, and look at his son, who in my mind is about 150 yards away. Meanwhile, the son, who has also seen all of this, has frozen in sheer terror in the road. He knows dad's coming. He doesn't know why. Is he coming to kiss me or is he coming to kill me? Well, in either case, he's about to find out because dad comes out of the sprinter's blocks, man. And he is coming and the feet are flying and the arms are pumping and the heart is pounding and the lungs are burning and the tears are flowing. And there is a fury in his eyes that are locked onto the eyes of his son. And son thinks to himself... I think maybe it'd be good for dad to hear my speech before he gets here. So he's fumbling around in his pocket, you know, and he pulls out his three by five card. He just starts shouting it out in advance. Father, um, uh, I have uh, sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. And uh, I I like that line. I hope that that caught with you. And and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. If you could slow down, that'd be really helpful. And, and, And if you just take me back as a servant, you know, and he's just, he's just waiting for the impact. And what does the dad do? You, You know this story. You've known it all your life. He beats the tar out of this kid. 
just destroys him. Screaming and castigating him and lecturing him. Oh, I knew you'd be back. As soon as the money ran out, I knew you'd come back. Groveling before me. Hoping that now I'll be gracious to you after the way you've humiliated me in front of all the neighbors. By the way, all the neighbors have come out at this point. Now I'm going to vindicate myself before all the neighbors. I am going to give you the beat down that you deserve and I am going to send you away like a scalded dog because that's what you are. Dead to you, you're dead to me. All right, he doesn't do that. Jesus is showing us the heart of the Father, guys. The man from heaven is pulling back the curtains and saying, hey, I don't know what kind of heart you think God has. Let me show you what it really is. Oh, dad comes a running. And he hits his son, I think, full on, like he doesn't even ease up. Takes him down in the street in a full bear hug, arms and legs. Rolls around in the dirt with his boy, showering him with his tears and with his kisses. And and the neighbors are coming out now because of the shouts of praise to God that the father is screaming at the top of his lungs. And he grabs his son finally and he picks him up and he says, look at you. And and the son says, dad. And he's, you know, his card's like on the ground. So now he's trying to find his three by five card, you know. So he picks it up and he says, "I, I feel like you need to hear this. Well, if you feel like I need to hear this, son, by all means, share. What, what, what do you have to say? And he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. And he says, you're right, my son, you have. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That's true, son, not on your own. You're not worthy. That's right. Okay, Dad. Well, then if you would just take me back as a servant. I'm sorry, what? Well, if you would just take me back as as a servant. So what? Give me that stupid card. What, are you kidding? Take you back as a servant? Oh, you will serve me, but you will not do it out of duty. You will not do it out of obligation. You will not do it so that I'll give you room and board or anything else. You will serve me out of love, out of joy. You will serve me because I'm your father. And you're my son. Let me tell you what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to take the feet that you used to desert me, and they're barefoot now, a sign of abject poverty. I'm going to put the finest shoes upon them. I'm going to take all that filth that you collected in your rebellion and rejection of me off in the far country, all the ways that you've made yourself unclean, and I'm going to cover it up completely in my priceless and perfect robe. I'm going to take the hand that has squandered my wealth entirely, and upon it, I'm going to place the ring of sonship, of power, of position and authority within my household. And he brings his son into the house and he tells that chief steward, hey, you know that calf that we've been feeding McDonald's to three times a day for the last five years? Yeah, the fat one, that's today's the day. Today's the day we eat him. I want you to kill the fatted calf. I want you to get the best band in town in here now. I want you to get out all the decorations, borrow some more from the neighbors. We are going to decorate. We are going to sing. We are going to dance. I want you to invite everyone in town, compel them to come in. And we're going to show my son what a real party looks like. 
and where real life is found. Now, that's what he does, but why does he do it? It's the repeating message. Because he's precious to him. He's precious to him, you see. And he needs to be precious to us, which is the point of the rest of the story, because then the camera angle shifts again, and now it goes to the older brother. Don't forget about him. He's still around. And Jesus says this in verse 25. It says, now his older son, the older brother, was where? He was out in the field dutifully working for his father as he had always done. And as he came in from the field and drew near to the house, he heard the sound of music and dancing emanating out of his father's house. And he called one of the servants and asked him what in the world was going on. I mean, this is unbelievable. What's happening? What have I missed? And the servant said to him, your brother has come home and your father has killed the fattened calf. The McDonald's one, you know the one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he has received him back safe and sound. And the older brother says, praise Jesus. This is unbelievable. This is the answer to my every prayer since he left good grief every night when we sit down at dinner. His chair is empty, and it's like a dagger to my soul. Every night I walk to my room, and I pass his empty room, and I look into his empty room, and I'm reminded and grieved by our great deprivation every Christmas, every Thanksgiving, every holiday. It's just not right. Nothing has been right since he left. Every year on his birthday, it's like a funeral, and you're telling me that he's back? And so then do you know what he did? He did what the father did. He reached down between his feet. He grabbed up his robes. The servant's thinking, I get to see this twice in one day. And he stuffs it down in his belt, right? And then he runs and he runs across the side of the house and he runs up the stairs and he catches the banister underneath his, underneath his arm here, you know, and it rips it half off. And he thinks, well, we're going to have to fix that. And then he gets to the front door and throws it open so hard. He about rips it off of the, off the hinges and he looks around like a madman, you know, just frantically looking for his brother in the crowd that's already gathered in the house. And finally he locks eyes with him. And of course his brother sees him too. And he's thinking, oh, good grief, here we go again. What am I going to get? Is he coming to kiss me or kill me? Because here he comes, feet flying, arms pumping, heart pounding, lungs burning, tears pouring, and he takes his brother down in a bear hug, arms and legs in the middle of the living room, showering him with his kisses, showering him with his tears screaming out his shouts to joy in front of the whole community, which is scandalized. It's not what he does. But kind of the whole point is that that's exactly what he should have done. And in not doing that, what did he betray? He betrayed that his heart is not at all like that of the father. And so the father invites him to change. It's what he's doing for us, guys. It's the point of the stories. Jesus says in verse 28, but he was angry. And he refused to go in, which in that culture is a major offense. Now follow this, against the father, and in this case, it is a public one. It is a public shaming and humiliation of the dad. Does that sound familiar? Because it was understood in that culture that in an event like this, the oldest son had very public, clearly defined duties none of which he performs. In fact, he won't even go in, and the crowd is whispering in the house, what, the older brother won't even come in? So what does the father do? Same thing that he did for the younger brother. It says, his father came out to him too, and he entreated with him. He pleaded with him to join the feast, to come to his table. But he, the older brother, answered his father, and listen to this. He says, look, these many years I have served you, served you, 
and I have never disobeyed your command. And yet you never gave me so much as a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends, much less a fattened calf, which tells you what? It tells you that he too is not interested in living for the Father or serving the Father or having a relationship with the Father. He's not interested in the Father at all. He's interested in what the Father has. He's exactly like his younger brother. He just has a different method or strategy for trying to obtain it from the Father. So instead of openly offending him and saying, you're dead to me, give me my inheritance... The older brother says, no, I will serve you like a servant to obligate you to give to me what I want. So that at some point I can say, look at all I've done for you. Now give me what I want. That's not service out of love. That's not service out of delight. It's not the service of a son or of a daughter. That's the service of a slave. It's ironic, isn't it? The son who comes back and asks if he could just be received as a servant is received as a son. (laughs) The son who has been the dutiful son all of this time reveals that really all of this time he's merely been a servant. And when the so-called good son, we'll just put that in quotes, sees that the so-called bad son, quotes for that too, gets what only he, the good son, thinks that only he deserves because of all of his performance... Man, he is absolutely furious. Again, Jesus says he's angry and refused to go into the house. And so his father came out to him too and entreated him to come in and to eat from his table. But he answered his father and he said, look, these many years I have served you and I've never disobeyed your command. And yet you never gave me so much as a young goat, much less a fattened calf than I might celebrate with my friends. But now notice this, but when this son of yours, he's just divorced his family. Not when my brother, when this son of yours, so you and your crazy son, you're over here in my mind, and I'm over here. When this son of yours came, you know, the one who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Translation, you gave to him what, at least in my estimation, only I am good enough to receive. And then the father said to him, son... You are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. However, you're wrong about all of this. Will you receive that instruction? For you see, he says, it was fitting to celebrate and to be glad when your brother came home. For this your brother, and don't miss it, because that's who he is, was dead. But now he is alive. He was lost. But now he's found. End of story. And you say, well, you can't end the story there. I mean, talk about leaving me hanging. I mean, you know, what does the older brother do? Does he come in the house? Or to put it differently, does he receive the offer to align his heart with the heart of the Father and to find a way, therefore, then to accept and to embrace and to celebrate his brother whom he is so disapproving of. And I don't know, because Jesus doesn't tell us. But I do know that these stories extend the same invitation to us. See, these stories come to us with an invitation. And it's an invitation, first of all, to recognize just how precious we are through faith in Christ to God. It's astonishing. And if we don't have faith in Christ, to recognize that that's the God that we come home to, when we come to Him with our repentance, when we turn our back on the far country authentically, 
when we move purposefully toward him and own the truth, which is that we have sinned against heaven and against you, and we are not worthy in ourselves to be called your sons and daughters. True, true, all true. And yet we offer ourselves in faith to Jesus who bore our humiliation publicly and did so naked, parenthetically, on the cross that we might through his stripes, through his blood, through the sacrifice of his life, be forgiven and made clean and adopted into the family of God as full sons and daughters of that father. Did you see his heart? It's an invitation for us to do that, but here else it's an invitation for us also. to Stop looking down our nose at other people. <laughs> to develop a heart that shares the passion and the desire and the love and the value of our Father for the lost, and not just the lost folks we already like, but anyone, everyone, for His gospel proclamation is made to all. Is it not? And he follows through on that offer for all who come to him in faith. Guys, people, meaning us and them too, are precious to God. And as a result, they need to be precious to us, which only makes sense if our hearts are lining up with his. So here's what I want you to walk away thinking about. Number one, just how precious you are to the Lord. Just let that minister to your heart today. Number two, you're in the far country, and you know that, don't you? I mean, that's not ambiguous. (laughs) Like when you're in the far country, you're not going, gee, I wonder if that's where I'm at. No, no, that's where you're at. I've been there, I know. That's the God who invites you to come to Him. You've seen His heart. And number three, we need to align our hearts with that of our Father, that we might in compassion, that we might in love For him, not out of duty, sacrificially lay ourselves down, even as he has done for us, that lost people everywhere might come to share at the same table and the same infinite feast. There's no shortage. It's not like, well, if we invite them, there won't be enough for the rest of us. No, no, it's infinite. It's infinite. At the same infinite feast that we ourselves have the privilege of attending. So think about that today, okay? Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the whole of your word, and we thank you today uh, for this part of it. Thank you for Luke, who has so faithfully by your Spirit recorded it for us and so beautifully recorded it for us. We thank you for our Savior who stood on this planet, God in the flesh, and spoke these words of brilliance, throwing back the curtains of heaven showing us the heart of the Father, and then Himself becoming sin for us, bearing our shame, taking away all of our guilt in His own body, His own person, and the sacrifice of His own life upon the cross. Lord, that You might not only freely and in love offer Your salvation to us, but having had the price paid, You might follow through on your offer faithfully for every one of us who comes to you in faith. And so then, Lord, if we're in the far country today, bring us to you humbly, card in hand. Let us confess fully 
all our failures and need for you, but then put shoes on our feet. Cover us with the robe of your righteousness. Mark us with the ring of your sonship and daughtership. Bring us into your home and to your table where there is life. Therein is the life that we're all looking for everywhere else. And having found our place at the table, O oh Lord, make us humble, mindful of the fact that there's no one out there anywhere who is in greater need than you and I were or than we were before we came to faith in you. Give us your heart for lost people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.